Christmas is a really special time of year, and people have different traditions, different things they associate with Christmas, and from different cultures being an international church, we have a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different ways that people celebrate Christmas. And as um, Steve mentioned earlier, our uh, youth ministry team, and some of this is even our women's ministry, have been decorating our uh, worship center, and it's really uh, always uh, enlivens my heart to get to see those things. So um, I want to welcome you again to the International Evangelical Church. And uh, for those I don't know, my name is Pastor Steve Winstead. Um, one of the things, we, we've got some Christmas trees up here. Uh, that's been a long tradition. And my family is the Christmas tree, and we always love. Uh, it doesn't feel for us often like Christmas until we see that Christmas tree uh, lit up and in our home. Now, like a lot of traditions at Christmas, they may be rooted or started by different groups, but Christ comes and redeems them. There was a missionary from England named Boniface, and he went to the Germanic people. He went to Germany in the 7th century, and he found the people there, and they were worshiping this huge tree. And when he saw them worshiping this tree, they treated this tree as if it were God. So being a bold missionary, Boniface got out an axe and chopped down the tree. And when the people saw that Boniface did not die right there, they began to listen to what he had to say because they thought whoever would do such a thing would drop dead immediately. And Boniface told them about the gospel message about the good news of how we're redeemed through Christ. Yet out of that tree stump began to grow a fir tree. We, I often refer to that as an evergreen tree, meaning it's green year-round. There's many trees that in seasons drop their leaves. But an evergreen is always green, no matter the weather, no matter the season. And Boniface saw this tree grow up, and he saw that it grew into a triangle shape. And he says, that tree, that reminds me of God. God is three in one. That reminds me of the Trinity. And he says, that tree reminds me of the good news of the gospel, that it's out of death God brings life. About nearly a thousand years later, there was a German monk, and he was walking through a meadow, a meadow filled with trees. And as he looked through the trees, he could see the stars in the sky, and he began to praise God, to worship God as he looked up and saw these evergreen trees with the, with the stars behind them. So when he got home, he thought, I want my kids to worship God like this. I want my kids to see what I've seen. So he went and chopped down a tree and brought the tree into his house and put candles on the tree. That man's name is Martin Luther. Many of us know him as the, uh, uh, the one who God used to start the Protestant Reformation to bring the church back to orthodoxy. Uh, so God has used uh, the tree in many ways. So my hope and prayer is that when we look at the decorations, and, and I could honestly walk you through every decoration from the Christmas wreath to everything and show you how God has used 
each of our Christmas decorations to point us to that glorious truth that Christ entered the world to save, that He came to redeem, that that's His purpose. So my prayer is that as we look up here on the stage and we see the lights reminding us the light of the world, we will be reminded of God's goodness, that He came at such a time as this to save us. Well, I mentioned last week, if you were here, we're starting a new series. Our new series, we're going to be walking through the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, I told you last week, Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience. He was writing to the nation of Israel. And Matthew, I gave you three questions that Matthew intends to answer. And I gave you an outline. I want you to know that the questions and the outline, they're not original to me. I didn't make them up. Um, a ministry I used to serve with, Downline Ministries, had gleaned them from someone else who gleaned them from someone else. So many have used this outline. The outline is not divinely inspired, so don't mistake it for that. But here's what it is. Outlines are helpful for helping us remember the flow of a book. I mentioned last week that I had a pastor, a pastoral mentor of mine, said, don't only memorize Scripture. Memorizing Scripture is vital. But learn to think your way through a book. That when you open up a book of the Bible, you can think of what's going on and the movements and what God is speaking there. So the three questions that Matthew seeks to answer, they're in your bulletin if you've got a bulletin. And you may notice we updated our bulletin last week. We have a place for you to take notes. So we always encourage note-taking because uh, we're quick to forget what God has to say to us. But the three questions are this. Who is the king? The nation of Israel, they've been looking for a king, waiting for a king, and they're wondering, who is this king that's going to come? And Matthew, he's going to tell the people of Israel, here's who the king is. And then they have another question. Where is the kingdom? Because what Israel is wondering, if the king has come, why hasn't he established an earthly kingdom, kicked Rome out, and came to reign and rule here on earth? And Matthew's answering that, key, that question, where is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom's begun, but it hasn't come in as full. And the third question that the book of Matthew seeks to answer is, what does kingdom living look like? For those here today, who are followers of Christ, who have trusted in Christ, we are kingdom people, and we live by the kingdom standard. So it seeks to answer, what, what does kingdom living look like? Now, the outline, last week I had you fill it in. This week it's already filled in because we're not going to spend much time on it. But I want you to be able to come back to it. Uh, we often call this the sweet peas of Matthew because it's an easy-to-remember outline and that can help you with the flow. The thing that we're going to be looking at today is the person of the king. The first two chapters deal with this. If this Jesus that you claim is Messiah, if he's truly the king, he's got to meet certain qualifications. There's over 200 Old Testament prophecies about the king, and he's got to meet every single one of them. And last week what we saw was this. In the first 17 verses, we saw the lineage of Jesus. And what we saw is that Jesus, humanly speaking, Jesus being fully man, we saw last week that he has a legal claim to the throne of David. 
You have to be from David. And we see that Jesus not only has a legal claim to the throne of David from one parent, Matthew gives us Joseph's line, which would establish the legal claim through his father, but he also has the biological claim to be the king through his mother Mary's line. They both go back to Joseph, though, with different family trees. So Scripture wants to make it clear that he legally has the right to be king. Well, the passage we're going to look at today is truly one of the most remarkable miracles you'll ever see in Scripture. It's a very familiar passage. I suspect the vast majority of us have heard and read this passage many times. And oftentimes when you hear something a lot, it breeds familiarity where we lose the wonder and the awe and the majesty of what God is doing. So I pray that we don't lose any of the wonder or the awe or the majesty of what God is doing as we look at this passage that for many of us is very familiar. Today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. If you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. If you have your Bibles or your devices, you can look at the Word Scripture there. And as always, we'll put the Scriptures on the screen. Hear the Word of our Lord. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you shall, name him, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word for people of God, and all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. God, we do thank you. We acknowledge you are God. And your word does declare that all men are like grass and all our glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. And Lord, may this be the word that is preached today. Unless you speak, nothing of significance is spoken. So speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we are in the Gospel of Matthew. And this is the circumstance in which Jesus is born into. Jesus is born in a very desperate, difficult, trying, stress-filled time. The nation of Israel, they are under the rule of the Romans. Rome had come in a couple hundred years earlier and had taken over the area. And Rome could often be a difficult ruler. The people there, they live in constant fear. 
of violence. They live in constant difficulty and poverty due to economic oppression. Some have estimated that the taxes that the Jewish people paid during Jesus' life could have been as high as 70% of their income because they're paying taxes to Rome and they're also paying taxes to the temple. So they're paying so many taxes that everybody is struggling. Everybody's hurting. And Matthew, his profession was that of a tax collector. That was one of the most treacherous, hated professions within the nation of Israel. You see, you were an Israelite who betrayed your own people to collect taxes for an oppressive foreign government that has dominion and rule over you. You're collecting taxes for Rome. And here's the way it would work. Every five years, the Roman government would hold an auction and all the senators and magistrates would come to that auction and they would bid on certain areas of the Roman world of which Israel was a part. And those magistrates and senators would say, I can collect this much, I'll pay this much. And how much ever they agreed to pay, they had to get that money to Rome. And the way they did it was going and collecting taxes from those people. And as you can imagine, the one who won the auction was always the highest bidder. It was always the person who would go to that region and to that area and get every dollar, every burr, every penny they could out of that area. It was usually a cruel, difficult person. And they would have that area under their control for five years. And what they would do is they would get tax collectors to work under them. And they would get people from that area who knew the culture, who knew the language, to collect on their behalf. But here's what those tax collectors did. Much like today, tax systems and tax codes are often difficult to understand. I never can understand tax systems and tax codes, how they work. It's very difficult. My mind doesn't think very well that way. So a tax collector... The way he would make money and become fabulously wealthy is he would collect extra. He knew how to work it so that he could make a lot of money for himself. And a good tax collector would have other tax collectors under him. So you may remember Zacchaeus. You remember what he said? He said, I'll give back four times what I've taken. Why? Because he was most certainly taking extra and lining his pocket with it. Well, Matthew is a teenager, most likely, and he would have been a younger tax collector serving under older tax collectors. And his outpost, his assignment, is a city called Capernaum. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, we see Jesus comes and he calls Matthew from the tax collector's booth to follow him. So Matthew, working there in Capernaum, collecting taxes from all those who worked and lived in Capernaum, protecting taxes from fishermen, men like Peter and Andrew, men like James and John. Matthew would have been viewed as a betrayer. He would have been hated by his own people. He would have been an outcast among them. 
Again, when, when they wanted to insult Jesus, they said, you hang out with sinners and tax collectors. That's one of the worst insults they could think to give Jesus, is you spend time with tax collectors. And within the disciples, Jesus had another disciple named Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a political group, and here's what they believed. They believed it was justifiable to get rid of Rome by force. So a zealot would often go into a crowd of people, and if they saw someone who was loyal to Rome, they would sneak up to them and put a knife in their back. And they believed that was okay. So think about Jesus' disciples. These fishermen that have been paying taxes to Matthew. Simon the zealot who wants to kill anyone loyal to Rome. And Matthew, known as a betrayer, loyal to Rome. Jesus didn't pick 12 guys that would all get along very well. Jesus took 12 men from different backgrounds. All of them were Jewish, but they had different professions, different occupations. And he uses these men to shape the world. Now, I say all that to get us to this. This is the gospel Matthew wrote. And who does he write it to? He writes to the Jewish people, the very people that would have viewed him as a betrayer. And he writes to them to say, I have been redeemed, I've been transformed, I've been saved, I've been changed by this man, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And right here in verse 1, it starts, the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way, the Jesus, the anointed one, Jesus the Messiah. This is what they're waiting for. How did this birth take place? Now the first half of chapter 1 points to Jesus' flesh, his humanity, being fully God, I mean being fully man. The second half of Matthew points to the fact that Jesus, he's fully God. He's not just any man, he is the God-man, fully God, fully man. And it talks about his birth. It says, when his mother Mary, I shall pause right there, Mary, the mother of Jesus. We often make a mistake in our churches and in our cultures of doing one of two things. We often overemphasize Mary. Many of you have grown up in cultures and traditions that would make Mary out to be more than she is. She's just a woman. She's, she's a woman. She wasn't born of a virgin herself. She's not deity. We don't pray to Mary. Some think she has special favor with Jesus, so they pray to her so that she'll go and get Jesus to do. You know, Jesus will listen to his mother is the thought. So we'll pray to her. That's not in line with Scripture. No, she's not, she is a woman. A woman, like any other woman. She's not divine. In some ways, there's nothing unique about her. Yet, at the same time, we often react to an overemphasis, a misunderstanding of who Mary is, and then we will underemphasize who she is. Realize this, she's a unique woman. She is the woman that when God the Father chose to send his son into this world to take on flesh, Mary would be his mother. Mary would be the one who would nurse him. Mary would be the one who would change his diaper. Mary would be the one to raise him. So don't miss the fact that what her calling is is glorious. She's just a woman, but God called her to something unique and glorious and magnificent. And I don't want us to miss that. 
So it's, we have to be careful when we talk about Mary. Not to make her something she's not, but not to lose the beauty of how God used her. And it says she was betrothed to Joseph. Now that word betrothed, it's not a word we use. I've seen some want to translate that as engagement. And I think in many of our cultures we have engagement. Where I come from, you, if a person's dating and they want to get married, they get engaged. And once they're engaged, they're committed to getting married. I think it's the same in Ethiopian culture. From what I understand, oftentimes you won't meet the person's family until you are engaged. So there's even a heavier emphasis on engagement in many ways. And being a church of many cultures, I know we have many different ways of doing this, but betrothal is not like engagement. We try to make it like that because that's all we understand, but it's different. It's very different. You see, in betrothal, you are legally married. Look at what it calls Joseph in verse 19. Her husband. It doesn't say her fiancé. And notice it also says he was going to divorce her. If you break off an engagement, you don't call it a divorce. You're going to get married. You've decided not to get married. And it's going to be painful and hurt when you break an engagement, but we don't call it divorce. And we don't call a fiancé a husband or wife. So betrothal is very different. Here's the way it worked in Jewish culture at that time. Nazareth, where Jesus' parents lived, was a small village, maybe 500 people. And two parents might look at each other and say, hey, you've got a boy, I've got a girl. They're close together in age. Our families have similar values. We're raising our kids in very similar ways. I think they might make a great match to get married. Now, some of you are familiar with this. You may have, you may have experienced it in your own life, or you may know somebody that's, that, that's been their marriage story, is that the parents were very, very involved. Well, they would do that when they were children. And then, as they became teenagers, they would enter the betrothal stage. Typically, a girl would be 14, 15, 16, a boy, 16, 17, 18, when they became betrothed to be married. Now, betrothal, they were legally bound to one another. And in all essence, they are married. There's only one thing that has not happened. Tells us what that is here. Look at verse 18. Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together. So in the betrothal period, you are considered legally married, but there's been no union of husband and wife. The marriage has not been consummated. So what would happen is the man, during the betrothal season, he would go and build a house for his wife to live in. And he would show, hey, I've got a job, I can make an income, and I can provide for my wife. So he would go and he would build a house. And typically, he would build a house directly next door to his parents' house because he usually worked with his father. We'll see that with Jesus. Joseph was a carpenter. Jesus became a carpenter. So you would go and you would build a house. Now, we don't know what Joseph's dad did, but if I were to guess, I bet Joseph's dad was a carpenter. But we don't know for sure. But Joseph likely would have gone and built a house for Mary to live in. And he would have spent a few months building this home, preparing for Mary. Jesus even gives a parable uh, uh, speaking to this. 
He talks about these bridegrooms waiting for the groom to come. And they're waiting for him to show up. They don't know exactly when he's coming, but they can tell it's getting close. They're looking at the signs. You see, you could tell when that groom was about to come. You see the roof going on the house. You can tell there's signs it's about to happen. And then he would come and get his bride. So realize this, betrothal is quite different from our engagement. It has a weightiness to it. And Joseph is betrothed to Mary, and it says, She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So we start off in Jesus' life. First thing we see is something that's quite scandalous. Nobody really believes in virgin birth when you first hear of it. It doesn't make any sense. Mary herself, when she's told you're going to have a child, what's her first response? In Luke, how can this be? Mary doesn't believe it. Joseph doesn't believe it. So know this, if you've ever struggled with this belief or know someone who has, you're in good company. But I'll come to this in a minute. The virgin birth is an essential of our faith. It is a key doctrine that we hold to. It's not one that we go, oh, there's a little bit of wiggle room. It's, a, it's one that we hold firmly to the virgin birth. And there's some uh, very important reasons for that. So Mary is found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, what we get here, it says he's a just man and unwilling to put him, her to shame. We get very little information about Joseph in Scripture. Joseph is definitely overlooked in Scripture. But he's one of the most amazing men to ever walk the face of the earth. He is the adoptive father of Jesus Christ. We get little information about him, but we know he's a just man. He's a godly man. Now I said he's the adopted father of Jesus. Do you realize that? Jesus grew up with a father that had adopted him and yet gave him full rights, full inheritance, viewed him fully as his son. That's how God entered the world. Because you see, that's all of our realities. We all, if you're a Christian, if you've trusted Christ, you are adopted in. Some people will say, are all people, are all people children of God? The answer is no. Scripture says in John 1, 12, to those who believed, to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. So you're adopted in, and when you're adopted into the family of God, you're not adopted in. Is a lower class servant. You're not adopted in as a second class citizen. You are adopted in with full rights of the inheritance of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus secured on the cross an inheritance for those who've rebelled against God to be made right with God through Him. That's the inheritance we receive. We receive a glorious inheritance. So we are adopted in. We all experience adoption. It's a beautiful thing. That's why even last month we talked a lot about adoption and we had a Sunday focused on it. Because we believe God has the orphan on his heart. You know why? Because that was you. That was me. We were orphans of God and he brought us into the family. And that's a beautiful part of our story. And I know in this beautiful nation here in Ethiopia, 
There is one of the highest percentage of orphans, maybe the highest percentage of orphans of any country on earth. And we should look at that and mourn and weep and pray. And as the church, as the people of God, we should ask God, God, what would you have me do? How can, how can I be involved in this? God always has on his heart the orphan. We see that throughout Scripture. And Jesus is no different. You know when Jesus looked and said, what's a man like? Who did he look to? Joseph. Joseph's a unique man. When Jesus said, what does a godly man look like? How do men treat women? What are these things that look like? He looked to his earthly father to see an example of that in Joseph. And Joseph wasn't perfect. But Joseph was the man that God chose to be the earthly father of his son, the second person of the Trinity, of Jesus Christ. And that's a very unique person. So we see here Mary and Joseph. But get this, he was unwilling to put Mary to shame. If Joseph broke off the betrothal, due to her expecting a child, it would be quite scandalous. In fact, according to Deuteronomy, Mary could have been stoned and left for dead as a result of what's happened. She could have been killed. And Joseph doesn't want that for Mary. So he decides he's going to divorce her quietly. Now I can imagine divorcing Someone that everybody knows you're betrothed to in a village of 500 people isn't very easy. So Joseph's trying to figure this out. He's wrestling with it. It says here, he considered these things. This is hard for Joseph. He doesn't want to put Mary to shame. And many of, many of you and many people have come from cultures that are, have a background in honor, shame. I'll tell you where I come from in the West. Uh, our culture's a little more, we call it right, wrong, or guilt, innocence. So we look at things a, a little bit differently at times. But in the honor-shame culture, when shame comes upon one person, a child, it can go to the parents. And when that shame comes to the parents, it can come upon the grandparents and the brothers and sisters. Everybody can feel the shame of what one person has done in the family. And that's what he wants to avoid for Mary. He wants to avoid her feeling that shame. And you see, even this child, Jesus, who would be born, Jesus would be born into a culture where many people would view him shamefully. Who's really your father? What really happened? You're not really Joseph's son. Jesus would have experienced that growing up. People would have known that about him. And look, in verse 20, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him, and it said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. I love how the angel approaches him, calls him son of David. I wonder if Joseph even thought of himself that way. I'm a child of the king, King David. And notice it says, do not fear. One thing every one of us in this room has in common, we all have fears. We all deal with fears. Every human feels fear at some point. To say we don't is to live in denial. Yet, Scripture says 365 times, do not be afraid. 
We're told over and over again, do not be afraid. Why do we not fear? Because we have a God who's over all things. He's good. He's gracious. Our fear is meant to move us to faith. And Joseph is afraid to take Mary as his wife. To me, I feel like he still desired to take Mary as his wife. I don't know. But he's afraid. He's afraid of all the, the shame and the, the culture implications and what everybody will say. We, we don't know what's wrapped up in all of his fear, but he is afraid to take Mary as his wife. And the angel comes to him and says, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This child is not for Mary. Falling into immorality, this child is from the Holy Spirit. And it's at this in verse 21. He says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Right there we get the purpose. This is our hope at Christmas. This is why we celebrate at Christmas. This is why we anticipate at Christmas because he came to save us from our sins. Now what's his name? Jesus. Old Testament Hebrew equivalent is Joshua or Hosea. Yahshua. We call him Jesus. It's all the same name. But here's what the name Jesus means. God saves. Listen to what he tells him to name the boy. You name that boy God saves. And here's the reason you're naming him God saves. Because he's going to save people from their sins. Now don't miss what's going on here. There's some rich theology in that right there. His name is God saves. So who saves is, the, is that question. God. God alone can save. This boy's purpose, he, this boy, is going to save people from their sins. But wait a minute, I thought you said only God can save. His name is God saves. And you just said he's going to save people from their sins. How can that be? Only one way. That boy he must be God. That boy has to be God in order to save people from their sins. And that's what he came to do, to save us from our sin. And until someone realizes that they're a sinner, they can't experience salvation. Not really. We, we have to know that we are a sinner who has rebelled against God. That we have roamed our own way. That we're in need of salvation. That's why this news is glorious. This is the most glorious news we'll ever hear. That he came to save us from our sins. We needed saving quite desperately. And it tells us the virgin... And it's quoting a prophet, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now that word in the Greek for virgin here means a woman who has not been physically intimate with a man is the idea. And Mary is the single parent of Jesus. Biological. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, why is this doctrine so critical? Why is it so important? We, we talked about Genesis chapter 3 
a couple months ago. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see that sin enters the world and all creation feels the impacts of sin. And that sin seed has been passed down from father to children, from father to children, from father to children. So that when you and I are born, we're born with that sin seed in us. Theologians will refer to that as original sin, that we're born with that. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Here's something I think every one of us, regardless of our theological nuances or anything that we all agree on, we all are sinful. As soon as we have the opportunity to sin, we do. Ask any parent raising a child. As soon as that child has an opportunity to sin, they rebel. They do what they want. They live for themselves. And we're in desperate need of saving. And that's what he came to do. He came to save to the uttermost. He came to save us. And not only that, it says this. The prophet says, they shall call his name Emmanuel. That means God with us. He came to save you, but not just to save you and leave. He came to save you and be with us. God with us. Isn't that something we need to hear? In the midst of Joseph's fear, the angel comes. He's coming to save you from your sins. God's going to be with you. We see many challenges. COVID numbers are on the rise. There's reason to fear. There's conflict here in our nation, and there's lots of implications from that conflict. Lots of people have differing fears, differing concerns, and, and we feel those. Economic concerns. There's marital division. There's all sorts of things going on and reasons to fear. And here's what we have to remember. In the midst of our pain, in the midst of our challenge, God is with us. He's with you. He doesn't promise he's going to answer every prayer exactly like you want, but he says, I will be with you in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the challenges, in the midst of the fears, in the midst of the concerns. He is with us. And that is good, gracious, amazing, glorious news that he is with us. Joseph, when he awoke from the sleep, he instantly obeyed, took Mary as his wife, and named him Jesus. I love Joseph in Scripture. An obedient man. A man who is said to be just. Who doesn't want to put others to shame. And is the adopted father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago I preached um, this same passage in a different context. And at the end of the sermon, I walked down and there was this young woman that came up to me. She was in tears. And she told me that she was from Afghanistan. That she was from a Muslim background. That she had been started coming to church and was learning about Jesus. 
but she just didn't believe Jesus could save her. Her husband had committed suicide and she said, I could have done more. I, I, I could have helped him more. There's no way that God can, can save me. And all I could do was pray for and remind her, you're exactly who our Savior came for. He came for you. He came to rescue you. Whatever sin you feel like you've committed that is so grievous and so heavy and so awful and so wretched, He came and died for that sin. And you can be secure in Him. And while my conversation was only brief with her, I talked to some of the other pastors at that church and they've been talking with her and ministering to her for a few months. And they'll continue to walk with this young woman who's wondering, can He really save me? I think when Matthew sat down to write this book, he wrote it in awe, in amazement, going, He saved me, a wretched tax collector, a traitor, hated by everyone. And he came and he saved me, and he brought me into his family, made me one of the twelve. He loved me. He cared for me. He was with me. He's great and He's glorious and He's redeemed me. And I want the world to know that He's redeemed them. And I want the people of Israel to know that they've been redeemed, that they can be redeemed through Christ. And that's what he writes this letter to a Jewish audience, reminding them, our Savior's come. And He's come to save us from our sins. Church, I pray that this Christmas season, that we're just reminded of that simple, yet glorious, magnificent truth. That He came to save us from our sins. God Himself. God came to the rescue in the person of Jesus Christ. And I pray as we celebrate, we celebrate that. If you're here today, and maybe some of you, you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. We hope you feel welcomed. We want you to know that Jesus came to save you. There's nothing you've done that he cannot save you from. He paid the price for all sin, for the most awful, wretched sin that we could ever imagine. If you're here today and you're a Christian, and maybe you find yourself just sort of what we call going through the motions, you believe, but you don't really live in glorious light of the fact that He came to save us. You don't live in the light of that fact that you are redeemed. You don't live in the light of the fact that He's with you. I pray that we'll be reminded that God is with us this Christmas. I pray that we celebrate. Christmas is a true time of celebration. But I say we pray we celebrate. Not in all the cultural ways, but be reminded of one truth. He came to save us from our sins. Let's pray. God, your word is good and it is true. I thank you that you redeemed a teenage tax collector named Matthew. 
who most people would have hated, would have despised, most would have rejected, yet you embraced him to the utmost. You saved him to the fullest. And I thank you that that redeemed man, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote a book exactly as you would have him write it, using his unique personality, but exactly as you'd have him write it in the Gospel of Matthew. And that it spoke to a Jewish audience 2,000 years ago, and it still speaks to all people, even today. Lord, if there's anything in my brokenness or fallenness that's been said or misunderstood, I pray that fall on deaf ears. But Lord, the truth of your word, may your Holy Spirit do the work that it desires. Redeem those who need redeeming. Pull those back to you who have gone astray. And remind us all that you have saved us from our sins and that you are with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.